It's time to catalog minor catastrophes, tell our real life terrors, and manifest some mayhem. That's right. Let's crack open the anxiety encyclopedia. I'm Catherine McNally. I'm Lorian McGill. And today I'm going to break the podcast a little. We're going to do something a little different. So I told you, Catherine, last week that I was just like, feeling pretty bummed out by humanity, disillusioned. Yeah, that's my everyday existence. And so I asked you if I could do something different. And I just, I was like, not very convincing. I was like, listen, I don't know how to do it or what it's going to look like or anything about it. But before I get started, are you cool if I do something different next week that's more hopeful? And you pretty much told me I could do whatever I want. So yeah, and I didn't even have a good pitch. I didn't even come in with like a strong elevator pitch. So, <laughs> so I promise I wouldn't do it very often, and that's true. We're going to go a little rogue. We're going to spend some time talking about things that alleviate anxiety. You know, usually we look at our anxiety, we learn about it, we laugh at it, and that helps. But this time we're going to look the other way a little bit. Okay. But I am still me, and this is still the anxiety encyclopedia. So first, let's actually talk a little bit about the bystander effect or Genevieve Ooh. syndrome. <laughs> uh, do you do, do you know what the bystander effect is? Yeah, I took multiple psychology classes because <laughs> big, uh, that's who I am. So And social psychology, big fan of the bystander effect. It's in all the books. It's in all the books. Yeah, I think I watched the documentary about that one case at some point. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, I actually never took a psychology class because I took a, I only needed, you know, the entry level and I took sociology and I decided sociology 101 and psychology 101 were not different enough for me to take them both. Sociology was bad enough for me, which this is a total tangent, but the reason it was bad is because it was, it was like a 300 person class, which is whatever. Oh my God. But halfway through the year, my teacher got a job in Washington and left. And so we had a random other teacher come in partway through. So it was kind of a mess, frankly. Maybe I should have taken a psychology class. Did I learn anything in sociology? (laughs) All right. So the bystander effect or Genevieve's syndrome. So early on the morning of March 13th, 1964, Catherine, Kitty Genevieve, who was a 20-year-old bartender, was assaulted and stabbed to death outside of the Queen's apartment that she shared with her girlfriend. Six days later, Winston Mosley, a 29-year-old Manhattan native, was arrested during a house burglary. And while he was in custody, he confessed to killing Kitty Genovese. At his trial, he was found guilty. He was sentenced to death. That was eventually commuted to life in prison. And he died in uh, 2016 after 52 years in prison at the age of 81. For once, life in prison actually meant that. Life in prison. He had actually killed... Uh, two other women or he confessed to killing two other women the complicated thing is someone else confessed to killing one of those two other women so he was only tried for kitty's murder okay everyone's just like really excited they're like no no no, i want that one as someone who loves credit this is not the kind of thing i would love credit for Mm -mm. like that's all you but i guess that's why i'm not uh murdering people (laughs) So that was That's obviously the only reason that was obviously like the fastest summary of her murder and his imprisonment ever. I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about the crime. If you are interested, there's been a lot of other coverage of her murder. So I'm certainly not doing it justice, but there are other podcasts, books, documentaries, because it led to what we are going to talk about, which is the bystander effect. 
So two weeks after she died, most she died, he was arrested and there wasn't, it didn't make big news initially. And then two weeks after her death, the New York Times published an article about the murder and they wrote, quote, for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman. They reported that those 38 people had heard her being murdered or seen her being murdered and hadn't done anything, including calling the police. Uh, some of the witnesses quoted in that article, their reasoning included. So this is in the New York Times article. People said, we thought it was a lover's quarrel. Frankly, we were afraid. One person said I was tired. Yes. I was tired. You can't come up with a better reason. They're like, I'm so tired. I can't. It was like three in the morning, Catherine. Okay. They had to work tomorrow. Okay. I'm kidding. Obviously, I'm obviously not serious. So it did become this thing. Then in 1988, writer Harlan Ellison, he wrote an article about it. It had also inspired a short story that he wrote. And he wrote, quote, the murder. He said it was witnessed by 38 neighbors, not one of whom made the slightest effort to save her, to scream at the killer, or even to call the police. He also cited these reports that he claimed to have read that one man viewed the murder from his third floor apartment window, stated later that he rushed to turn up his radio so he wouldn't hear the woman's screams. So her death and the way it was covered became emblematic of uh, essentially the apathy and the coldness and the callousness of big cities, particularly New York. There was this thing that like, yeah, see, if you move to New York, dozens of people will just turn up their radio so they don't have to hear you be murdered. I feel like this is why people think New Yorkers are cold. It's like, no, they're just efficient. Yeah, they turn up that radio so fast. They're so efficient. No, this was certainly part of it. This fed into a mythos that I think existed already, but it validated all of that. It was confirmation that, yes, New York was this cold, heartless place and all big cities, but especially New York. Yeah. The other thing that came about as a result of this was the bystander effect theory, which is a social psychological theory that states individuals are less likely to help a victim in the presence of other people. And then... For the next 40 years, a bunch of studies were done on this. So when they looked at the studies, they looked at things like uh, diffusion of responsibility, which is like the more people, then the responsibility becomes diffused. So each person feels less responsibility because there's so many people. They also looked at the number of bystanders. So this the charge was helmed by social psychologist John M. Darley and I should have looked up how to pronounce this name, Bib Latane. And so they became interested four years after Kitty Genevieve died in 1968, they became interested in the case and they started researching this. And their research showed that contrary to usually you might expect, there's that idea of safety in numbers, right? If there's a big crowd around, you're safer. But their research suggested that larger numbers of bystanders actually decrease the likelihood that someone will step forward and help a victim. They might think that other people know how to help better. They might not want to help while other people are watching. They might notice no one else is helping. So Darley and Latane said there are like some, they broke down these characteristics of emergencies affecting bystanders. And then they said, when a bystander sees something happen, they go through a bunch of cognitive processes really fast and decide what to do. So we're going to butcher social psychology quickly. We've come for virology right rabies we've come for uh 
uh, fungus, you know, whatever that yeah. study is. We've come for meteorology and geology. Yeah. We're coming for you now, social psychology. <laughs> we're here to poorly do all the fields. We're not limiting ourselves. No, we're big dreamers. What can we say? <laughs> so, so the first thing is that the first process is you notice that something is going on. That makes sense. Yes, of course. But one thing about this is that people who are alone are more likely to be more aware of their surroundings. You're less likely to look around in large groups for a couple of reasons. One is you might be less nervous because you're in a large group. But the other thing that was interesting is they said because of sort of the rules of etiquette, politeness, mm. you don't want to be seen as nosy. You don't want to be like looking around a lot. Uh, this is honestly, I'm bad about this. I sent you a text message two days ago that was like, I didn't mean to read the text of the girl next to me, but I am going to tell you what it says now. When I was on an airplane, I felt like I had to caveat before I just told you what this woman's text message said. Look, I see. I feel like I'm the opposite of this. I mean, the only barrier to me looking at other people is that they're all taller than me. So if there's a big crowd, that's my reason. Otherwise, I have way more people to keep track of because who knows what kind of crazy they're bringing to this crowded event. That's true. It's true. But maybe you'll be less likely to see there's too much going on. Yeah. Um. So they notice the next thing is that they are interpret. So are they going to interpret the situation as being an emergency? And one of the things people in a crowd are doing are they're looking at the reactions of other people to see if those other people are reacting like it's an emergency. Yeah. Interpretations of context also played a part. So they did one test and they had a woman yell, get away from me. I don't know you. And bystanders intervened 65% of the time. But if she yelled, get away from me, I don't know why I ever married you, they intervened 19% of the time. Yeah, that's a couple's problem. And this Domestic is a, violence can't happen well, to married people. No, well, domestic violence, I think, can only happen to coupled people. I don't think it's domestic violence if it's a stranger. That's not a domestic. That's oh. just an assault. Duh. Duh. This is why language matters. Okay. <laughs> uh, I do think, you know, she was, they were having an argument. He'd as near as I could tell, he didn't actually have hands on her in yeah. both of these circumstances. Interesting. Okay. So they interpret the situation. And I definitely, I, I definitely look around at other people as kind of a panicky person. We even talked last week about the plane. I, I always get nervous, but if everyone gasps, I'm like, oh, that then was a big turbulence. It's bad. Yeah. Right. So once they've noticed, once they've interpreted what they've noticed as an emergency, they're going to, it has to do with the degree of responsibility they feel. And that's determined upon three things. The first is whether or not they feel the person is deserving of help. And okay. I, and these are cognitive processes. So I don't think anyone's really like explicitly like, I don't think you are worthy of helping. Right. But it's right. what's happening in your brain. The second is the competence of the bystander. Do they feel like they can help? If, you know, right. if I'm on a plane and they're like, is there a doctor on the plane? My degree of responsibility is low because I'm not yeah. a doctor. I'm like, no, but I've watched <laughs> Crazy Anatomy. Does that help? I certainly lack the competence to help. And then the third is the relationship between the bystander and the victim. So once they've gone through those things, they the fourth is form of assistance. They might have either direct intervention or detour intervention. So detour intervention would be calling the police. 
Okay. They're not going to directly step between whatever's happening. Find they're calling the help. police. They're calling or some authority. They're getting yeah. someone to help. And then the fifth and final behavioral process is they actually implement the chosen action. So they've gone through probably in a matter of seconds, all of these processes, and they're going to decide they can act or not. So that's what they looked at as what the thought process that's going on. Some of the other factors they looked at, like I said, diffusion of responsibility. So that's this idea that if one person is asked to complete a task alone, their sense of responsibility is strong and they're probably going to do it. If a group is required to complete the task together, each individual has a much weaker sense of responsibility and will shrink back in the face of difficulties or responsibilities. It's just like every group project you've ever been on. Yeah, for sure. They also looked at ambiguity is another factor that affects whether or not a person assists, which makes sense, right? Yeah. In cases of high ambiguity, it can take a person or group up to five times longer before taking action than in cases of low ambiguity, which seems totally... That makes sense. Yeah. Logical to me. That follows. Uh, In these cases, bystanders will determine their own safety before proceeding. They are more likely to intervene in low ambiguity and significant consequence situations than in high ambiguity, significant consequence situations. Latanya and Rodin suggested that in ambiguous situations, bystanders, again, may look to one another for guidance, but then they may misinterpret others' lack of initial response as a lack of concern. And then each bystander decides that the situation is not serious. So they're all looking to someone else, and then they interpret that looking around as, okay, I guess it's no big deal, but actually everyone is just like, should we be doing something? Uh. It's also another factor is the bystander's understanding of their environment. If you're more Mm -hmm. likely with the surroundings, you're more likely to help. This is all making sense so far. And then finally, group cohesiveness. So people who are in groups with people they know, if we're with a group of friends, you're more likely to act because that's in accordance with the societal norms. You want your friends or family to think that you're a good person when you're with them. This is okay. (laughs) I was thinking more like, if I'm in a group, we're better at like taking a plan of action and like doing it. Well, that may also be true. Okay. But part of it is that you, when other people who you care about are perceiving you, you are more likely to intervene. Okay. And when you're alone. Okay. And part of that may also have to do with assessing your own safety, going back to yeah. safety and numbers of people, you know, right. So you're like, these people aren't going to leave while I'm helping. They're going to help too. So I think that's also true. But part of it is definitely like, you know that the norm societally, if someone asks you, like, would you intervene if you saw a woman being mugged? You're supposed to say yes. No. Like, of course. I would chase them down. Me. I would chase them down for that lady's iPhone. No, you'd only chase them down for your own iPhone. I see. I barely chased. I walked quickly. Okay. <laughs> Story also, soft the, pedal. Oh my god, this is making so much more sense. I was in a group. I was with my family. I thought, oh, I go to get my own phone. They're not going to leave me. I'm probably not going to get murdered if I was alone. But I, I think know. that actually goes against the group cohesiveness as far as the societal <laughs> norms. I think I would be like, my family does not want me to chase this guy. My mom will never let me hear the end of it if I chase a mugger to a pickpocket for my <laughs> phone. I will never hear the end of this i don't know i imagine mugger with a weapon and i'm like no hell no i'll call 911 though i'll call batman send the signal up 
You'll call Batman? Yeah. How do you have access to the bat signal? What's your in here with Commissioner Gordon? I've already revealed too much. Also, that cracks me up, though, because the bat signal's in one... I mean, it's 2024. Probably it's on, like, a remote now, right? You have an app on your phone yeah. that's like, bat signal. You don't it's actually have to run up to the top of the... And turn on the... where it was. The top of the building and click. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon turning that on. Okay. Uh, so, in fact, in 1969, they found that 70% of people would help a woman in distress if they were the only bystander, while only 40% would come to her aid if other people were present. Interesting. Because of the factors we talked about and because there are other people around. So that sense of responsibility is lesser. Does it, you might not know this, does it change based on gender or age or? I don't have that. I'm okay. sure. I'm absolutely sure that was in the 40 years of studies that they did, yeah. but not in their information. Because in my mind, I'm like, if it's a man, fuck you. You can deal with it. You're fine. No, this is if a woman was in distress, but I know I'm well, saying if it was a man, but I like, also that's select bud. in a group as a woman, I'm less likely to intervene because again, you're assessing your own safety, right? If the sure. attacker is a large man yeah, and I'm in a group, yeah, I'm going to hope that another large man is going to do Can. something. Yeah. Step on it. Right. So that's kind of depressing, right? everything we yeah. just talked about kind of a bummer. yeah bye is that the end no let's not despair <laughs> so it's like a, you set this episode up in a way that uh, so first of all the happy that very famous new york times article was some pretty bad journalism <laughs> I was like, I think I remember that this was bullshit. It had a number of inaccuracies. And in fact, people knew that all the way back in 1964. So in 1964, reporters at a competing news organization discovered that it was inconsistent with the facts. But they were unwilling to challenge, at that time, New York Times editor Abe Rosenthal. New York Times uh -huh. was like the big, big man in town, right? And they were not going to come for, for Rosenthal. Then in 2007, an article in the American Psychologist found that no evidence for the presence of 38 witnesses or that the witnesses observed the murder or that the witnesses remained inactive. So like all of your claims seem to be wrong. Yeah. In fact, Mosley had attacked Genevieve twice in two different places. And because of that and the layout of the apartment complex, no witness saw the entire thing happen. I mean, she was murdered in a stairwell, right? Um, He stabbed her, like, in front of the building, and then she ran away. Oh, okay. And, and she, she got to a back that. door that was locked, and he came and found her, and that's when he attacked her the second time. Yeah, that's the so reason he ran away the first time is because Robert Mazur, a neighbor, shouted, let that girl alone. Mosley ran away, and Genevieve slowly made her way toward the rear of the building. And at this point, she's seriously injured, and she's out of view of all of the witnesses. Right. And that's when he finds her and attacks her again. Investigation by police and prosecutors showed approximately a dozen individuals had heard or seen portions of the attack. So way fewer. And none saw or were aware of the entire incident. Right. Only one witness, Joseph Fink, was aware that she was stabbed the first time. They didn't even know what was happening. They just knew she was being attacked, right? So when the guy yelled right. and the other guy ran away, he was like, great. Oh, great. It's done. And only Carl Ross was aware that she was stabbed in the second attack. 
Many were entirely unaware an assault or a homicide had taken place. Some thought they heard a domestic quarrel. Some thought they heard a drunken brawl. And some thought they heard a group of friends leaving the bar when he first approached her. It was like after last call. You just hear like sounds outside and it takes you a second. And you're like, I don't really know what this is. I'm and just you wait. And yeah. you don't hear it again. Because after the initial attack, he punctured her lungs. She eventually died from asphyxi- asphyxiation, which means it's unlikely she was able to scream at any volume. Yeah. Because part of the story of the New York Times was this thing that she was screaming like, out, screaming for help yeah. over and over again. So then in 2016, the New York Times said of their own reporting, I guess they can do this because it's been like 40 They're like years, breaking they're news. Like, we fucked up. But none of us because we were all infants right. or not even born. Just for the record, <laughs> this was 45 years ago. Just before we tell you how we messed up. They said... Quote, while there was no question the attack occurred and that some neighbors ignored cries for help, which again relies on a number of variables, mm-hmm. most of them being that I'm like, yeah, you hear it. It doesn't come up again. You're trying to figure out what the sound mm-hmm. is. They said the portrayal of 38 witnesses as fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety. Only a few had glimpsed part of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three. The New York Times even said he attacked her three times. And afterward, two people did call the police. Not only that, but a 70-year-old woman, her neighbor, Sophia Farrar, ventured out and cradled the dying victims in her arms, whispering, help is on the way, until they arrived. Mm. She died on her way to the hospital. It's also noteworthy, at least two people called the police, and this happened, 1964 predates New York having a centralized 911 number. It actually That's wasn't crazy. that easy to just call an emergency number. You had to, like, send a carrier to, like... pigeon, <laughs> then... <laughs> you had to uh, blink the light in Morse code <laughs> on the wall across from your apartment, and then people would pass it along until eventually it got to the police. And I don't know if you've ever played a game of telephone, but by the time it got to the police, it was completely different from the first <laughs> message. Um, so obviously her murder is completely tragic. Still, it doesn't take away any of that. Yeah. But I think... Wow, that's some pretty irresponsible reporting. People called the police. People came out of their homes. People didn't leave her alone. Like, there's so many pieces there. But that doesn't mean... Like, they still conducted a lot of research on the bystander effect theory, right? So she was kind of the starting point. We can see a lot of errors there. But that doesn't invalidate 40 years of research. So let's look a little more at that as well. General bystander effect research was mainly conducted in the context of non-dangerous, non-violent emergencies, mm-hmm. which would make a difference, right? Because yeah, because if it's that... violent, I'm not going to be like, let's go into the violence. Well, no, they're mainly conducted in non-violent, which means there's less urgency to help people. Oh, duh. A study in 2006 tested bystander effect in emergency situations to see if they would get the same results. In situations with low potential danger, significantly more help was given when the person was alone than when they were with another person, so bystander effect. But in situations with high potential danger, participants confronted with an emergency alone or in the presence of another person were similarly likely to help the victim. That's one study. Again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not claiming, like, overturn the whole, but still. 
it's notable, right? And that yeah. nonviolent versus violent is a heavy variable. Yeah. This suggests that in situations of greater seriousness, it's more likely people will interpret the situation as an emergency. Because that also, if it's higher higher violence, it's less ambiguous. That's true, yeah. And so if amb- ambiguity is a big factor, there's less of that. And so people are going to go. Then... In 2019, the journal American Psychologist published a study by researchers from the UK's Lancaster University, and this used footage of more than 200 incidents from surveillance cameras in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, Cape Town, and Lancaster, England. Um, thank you, researchers, from not being from like Greenwich or Gloucester or uh, Worcester. Like those are all really hard to say. Okay, but you nailed it. Because I had time to think about it. If I'd been reading it (laughs) off of the thing, I would have choked for sure. So in this case, they were taking this footage from 200 closed circuit cameras. Okay. Creepy. So (laughs) in public spaces. Still like kind of weird. They didn't install the cameras. These were like the regular cameras. Okay. They watched the footage and they had to code the nature of the conflict. Try to figure out because they're just watching from you. Hi up. They would code the nature of the conflict, the number of direct participants, and the number of bystanders. Bystanders were defined as intervening based on a pretty broad, pretty broad definition of intervention. So it could be pacifying gestures like, hey, people who are listening can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but I'm doing a universal, let's all take a calm down breath moment, folks, hands. That's the perfect description of what Thank you just you. did. Wow, it was so clunky. I can't think that was the perfect description of anything. So pacifying gestures, calming touches, or literally blocking contact, like actually stepping between parties. It could be considered consoling victims of aggression. So like after one party had walked away, providing practical help to a physical harmed victim or holding, pushing, or pulling an aggressor away. So they had like a really uh, broad definition of intervention which is probably fair, but is something to keep in mind. Each event had an average of 16 bystanders and lasted slightly more than three minutes. The study found that in nine out of 10 and nine out of 10 incidents, so 90%, at least one bystander intervened with an average of 3.8 interveners. So I feel bad for that one guy who 80% intervened. Like where do you leave an arm back at the, I'm kidding. I understand how statistics and averaging works. Um, also, there was no significant difference across the three countries and the cities, even though they differ a lot as far as crime yeah. and violence. Those three cities have a wide range of crime and violence, but there was no significant difference in the amount of respondents. Instead of more bystanders creating this immobilizing bystander effect, the study actually found the more bystanders they were, the more likely that at least someone would help. Hmm. So... Uh, They said this is a powerful corrective to the common perception of stranger danger and the unknown other. It suggests people are willing to self-police to protect their communities and others. The psychologist and lead author Richard Philpott said that the high intervention rate suggests humans have a strong desire to resolve conflict and help those in need. While the new research, contrary to some earlier reports, does not disprove the bystander effect. So when it first came out, everyone was like, bystander effect is a sham. And so the researchers then came back and were like, whoa, uh, that's not actually what we were saying. But they did say it does reveal that people intervene in dicey situations more often than we assume. 
And like we talked about, another broad meta-analysis suggests the more dangerous the situation, the more likely each observer is to intervene. Phil Pott stresses, though, that that's not what his paper shows, that it doesn't disprove it. He said the bystander effect is an individual measure. It gauges the chances that one person will intervene to help someone in trouble. What he and his colleagues did was to test the collective likelihood that anyone in a crowd would help, which will naturally be higher. Another reason the researchers pointed out that another reason it might be different from all those other studies is because the bystander effect was in a lab setting. People don't necessarily act the way they would in real life, whereas they were looking at real world interactions. So if a greater likelihood of danger and violence leads to a greater incidence of acting, then it makes sense that even if in the lab they were trying to mimic high danger situations, your body and your brain still mostly understand that that's not, the person isn't actually at risk, right? So it may even still lower your likelihood to act. Whereas looking at these surveillance cameras was real world examples instead of a lab environment. So, so is the bystander effect real? Like probably to some degree, right? But it's not as I think blanket despair as it may appear, thank you, New York Times article, for nothing. One interesting thing is that it's possible that even being aware of the bystander effect can make us more likely to act. Because we might we'll re we might recognize, oh, everybody is not necessarily unconcerned. Everybody's just looking around to see if we're concerned, yeah. right? Plus, Research in 2018 suggests the more that we see and hear about people helping others, the more likely we are to do good ourselves. So hmm. let's hear about some stories of people doing good. So these aren't exactly the opposite of the bystander effect. It's not always like a bunch of people were standing around and did something. But in the spirit of that, I crowdsourced a bunch of stories. Some are mine. Some I found online. Some are friends and families of people uh who go out of their ways to help strangers in large and small ways. An antidote to do scrolling for a couple of minutes. So Love it's like it. chicken soup for the internet soul. <laughs> so the first one is mine quickly. Uh, I think I've told this story before, but when I was driving in Denver and it was snowy and I really didn't know how to drive in the snow and I slid through a stop sign and there were a bunch of cars coming. That was the only time there were cars coming. Every other time I could have easily slid through that stop sign with no issue. And I steered off the road and into a guardrail and a nice young man moved my car back onto the road. And that was definitely at that point, a non-emergency. I was fine. I could have figured it out, but he was very nice to do that. So that's one. Usually when another car pulls over, you're like, I'm fine. <laughs> Go away. Oh, and another car pulls over. I'm like, he's going to murder me. It was so. day. And there were still a lot of cars around. So. Okay, good. <laughs> Here's one I found online. This is Marilyn Kinsella in Canmore, Canada, said, I forgot about the rule preventing liquids and carry-on luggage. So when I hit security at the airport, I had to give up all my painting supplies. When I returned a week later, an attendant was at the baggage area with my paints. Not only had he kept them for me, but he'd looked up my return date and time in order to meet me. Oh my gosh. I know. And that one, back to the idea, like, is the person worthy of my help? I am so judgy of people who forget the liquid rules. Absolutely. I'm like, there's so many signs, you guys. So many. When you check in, it's like, don't bring liquids. So I just think that's such a, and wow. especially like he was working when you're doing your yeah. job, are you going to stop? And so I really liked that one. Wow. 
My sister Lee said uh, when we were having CPR training, one of my coworkers talked about how a friend of hers was hiking. He was alone and he collapsed and three people found him and administered CPR until the ambulance got there for like 30 minutes to an hour. Oh my God. This is on his mind again. When I was in college, I studied abroad in Ireland for a month. And the day I was supposed to return, I had the stomach flu (laughs) from one of the other girls in the group. And my flight was in the evening. I started feeling bad in the afternoon. So by the time I got to the airport, I wasn't like throwing up anymore, but I was feeling pretty bad. Right. And so I had a short flight from Dublin to Heathrow. And then I had to spend the night in Heathrow airport. And then my flight left at like 5 a.m. Oh my God. And so I got on this little tiny plane and I was hoping for a fizzy drink, but it was too short. So they weren't going to give me anything for free. And this sweet little older Irish couple sat next to me and they were were so kind and they could tell that I didn't feel well. And they gave me half of their ham and cheese toasty, which it was on an airplane. It was probably like $18. And they gave me a bag of hard candy to eat on the plane. And then while I was waiting in the airport and as I was leaving, the man was like, do you have money to get something to eat while you're waiting in the airport? They were adorable. They were so kind and I was feeling so awful and they were really, really sweet. And uh, so I always remember them. They were adorable. Mm-hmm. Usually I do not want people talking to me on planes, no. but I was feeling so pitiful and they were so Also kind. like a little Irish couple. Yeah. I know. Absolutely. It- <laughs> no kidding. Here's another one from online. This is Zena Hamilton in the United Kingdom. She says, when I was seven, my family drove to the Grand Canyon. At one point, my favorite blanket flew out of the window and was gone. I was devastated. Soon after, we stopped at a service station. Moping, I found a bench and was about to eat my sandwich when a biker gang pulled into the station. Is that your blue Ford? A huge, frightening man with a gray and black beard asked. Mom nodded reticently. The man pulled my blanket from his jacket pocket and handed it to her. He then returned to his motorcycle. I repaid him the only way I knew how. I ran up to him and gave him my sandwich. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Incredible. It's so cute. And I mean, the, the big ones are great, but there's something about those low stakes. Like this, these yeah. bikers just saw this kid's blanket and it wasn't make or break. No one was going to die. Right. But they were like, that, that blanket, blanket means something to that kid. Yes. And we can, yeah, I love that. I love and that. I love the twist of expectations. Yes. Like scary biker with a heart that's as soft as that blanket. <laughs> um my friend Tori said I think this one is uniquely New Mexico and it is so I actually am going to explain a little bit which is that in New Mexico math involved no (laughs) (laughs) no and this is a little one but in New Mexico we have a pizza chain called Dion's and their pizza is good but their ranch dressing is amazing people Mm. love their ranch dressing they make their own it's super good so she says I told the boy at Dion's today that I live in Texas and I have to get my ranch. And he looked at every bottle to get me one with the farthest out used by date. Yes. Good person. And again, it's like, he's, you know, he's working at a restaurant. He's not getting paid enough. People are not nice to him. He has too much to do. And still he's like, oh, she needs this ranch to last for a long time. He gets it. He's like, yes, (laughs) it is worth it. I'll help you out. My brother-in-law and my sister just yesterday stopped to help a woman who'd run out of gas on the side of the road. And while they were helping her, another car pulled over to help push her car off the road as well. Okay. I got to say just for a minute, I feel like a shit person right now because I would never do that. 
Okay, but you're a woman alone. Again, my brother-in-law is like 6'5", and this okay. was a woman whose car had broken down. She'd run out of gas, and it I would was absolutely, I cons- Okay, but I am constantly looking for abandoned animals in boxes, so... Right, good. See? No, this is... Okay, the point is not to make you feel worse, but maybe, you know... Somehow I make it all about myself again. <laughs> Also, Lee was, they were at a concert a couple weeks ago and a gal passed out and Lee and three other people stayed with her and kept making sure that someone had called an ambulance. They kept making sure someone had called 911. Uh, Another online story. Someone says, as I left a party, I got on the wrong freeway and was immediately lost. I pulled over to the shoulder and called my roadside assistance provider. I will just say as someone without a good sense of direction, the idea of leaving a place at night and getting on the wrong freeway and not knowing where you are. And then the days before GPS is a nightmare situation. Like I do not have the, the, uh, street smarts to get out of that situation on my own. I barely I would know be where lost I'm going. forever. Right. I barely know where I'm going with GPS <laughs> constantly updating me that I've taken the wrong turn. Yeah. Yeah. So he called the roadside assistance provider. She tried to connect me to California Highway Patrol. Sorry, this is a woman, Michelle Arnold in Santee, California. But the call to California Highway Patrol never went through. Hearing the panic in my voice, she came up with a plan B. You're near this office, she said. I'm about to go off shift. Stay put and I'll find you. Ten minutes later, she rolled up. She guided me not only to the right freeway, but all the way to the correct freeway exit. And then with a wave goodbye, she drove back into the night. Oh, my gosh. What an angel. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I have a collection from my parents. So once when I was a kid at the state fair, we had been there all day and state fair food, we had spent our food budget during the day, right? So my parents, we were laying in the grass, the kids, my parents were discussing whether to get like a dessert to share. They were just talking about, do you want to get a dessert to share before we leave and head home? And an older man came up to my dad and shook his hand and said, what a lovely family you had. And my dad could tell he was doing the thing where he was, he was putting money in his hand, right? He was like old school gentleman pressing money into his hand. And dad thanked him and he didn't look at the money until the man had walked off Yeah, and it was a hundred dollar bill. And so we, everyone got dinner and dessert. Nobody had to share. Oh, uh, and similarly, when we were really little, my mom was once counting change to buy gas because at the time that happened fairly frequently, pennies, quarters, whatever. And the man behind her bought gas. She sometimes says maybe he was just in a hurry, but my dad says, no, he was being nice. <laughs> I love your mom's outlook. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, And then when the last one, and I do remember this too, my dad was driving all seven of us kids to Illinois and my mom was flying because she had just had surgery on her knee. So it was just my dad and the seven of us. And we stopped to eat and the waiter said something thoughtless about what a burden it must be to have so many kids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And an older gentleman again came over and said, you know, what a blessing the family was and how well-behaved we were. And my dad thought he was just trying to counter the waiter's comment <laughs> and thanked him. And then we went to pay for our meal and that guy had actually paid for oh my everyone's gosh. dinner. So. Wow. And then a couple more, which is uh, our friend Selena, I asked her and she said, I don't know if this counts. And I said, it totally counts. So they sold an old dining room table on Facebook marketplace. And they had said in the ad, like, bring something you can carry a table in. Right. 
and the people who picked it up did not have a car they could put the table in and they had like a, a kid motorcycle <laughs> that's right with a kid <laughs> so mark drove basically the whole table and chairs to their house and then he talked with them for an hour so he went mark. out of his way to be nice she that said, doesn't surprise me at all i told her that exactly <laughs> but That's... he went out of his way to be kind to strangers oh my god uh, similarly my mom was just remembering that when she was around 10 she watched her mother pay for someone's groceries in front of her who was having to put groceries back because she didn't have enough and she yeah. pulled out her checkbook and paid for the groceries so so i have one more that's mine uh, but before I do that last one, I want to say if this made anyone think of any examples of their own, go to our Instagram at the underscore anxiety pod and write a comment on the post for this episode telling us your story. Oh, yeah. Because I like hearing these. Uh, Can I do and- one true crime one before oh, yeah. you do your amazing totally. one? And just thank you to my friends and family who let me mind them for information. I appreciate you all. Yeah, this um, is so cute. <laughs> yes, go. Um, remember the Night Stalker and when all those people came out and like he was like on the run and all of the it was the people. Yes, that is a great example. Found him and like helped arrest him. Just that like one a- is always one that I think about. I'm like, people are good. That's a great example. And didn't it like picked people up as they were running down the yes. street? Like, like more and more people of their go into the street. Just chasing this guy. Yeah. That's a really good example. Yeah. So my last one is about six years ago. I was walking my dog Addie. And two other dogs came up in the street and started to attack her. And they were uh, pit bull mixes, boxer mixes, which I'm not stereotyping all dogs, but they were big dogs. And they started to attack her. They were like grabbing her by the neck. I couldn't get her away. And I just started screaming in the street. And so many neighbors came out of their houses. And like one woman started spraying these dogs with a hose. They wouldn't go away. And I think these dogs were trained to fight other dogs because they actually never tried to attack the people who were trying to get my dog out. So then a man comes running out of his house and he has pepper spray and he like runs up to these big dogs and he puts his hand kind of over them and pepper sprays their eyes. And Addie and I start running away. The dogs come back. He sprays them again. Like he gets me, we get into the house. The dogs run away crying basically. And this guy, I'm like, thank you so much. Um, like you saved my dog's life. And he's like, he said, I was a security guard. So as soon as I heard you screaming, I looked out the window because I wanted to see if I needed to bring my gun or my pepper spray. Like he was, he didn't know why I was screaming, but he was going to come out and help. Oh my God. So I felt very comforted and Addie was fine. In fact, she was overdue for a haircut. And I think all of the fur saved her life. Yeah. Because it created a buffer. But she, uh, I was just very, like reassured by how many people in the neighborhood where I lived were attentive to a woman screaming in the street, the opposite of what the New York times claimed, right? Yeah. That everybody just turned on their radio. No, a bunch of people came out and, and helped us. So I love that. There you go. That's so terrifying. It was, but now I walk with a cattle prod. So yeah. And now nobody's going to fuck with you. <laughs> that's right. That's, oh my gosh. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah. So those are, those are my stories. Thank you for listening to. It's incredible. Those stories. Your dog story, not at all the same as yours, but it did remind me one time I was babysitting this, I think it was a beagle or something. It wasn't fixed, which is important because I don't know, dog balls are just so upsetting to me. And also I think it makes it more likely that he ran away because he had an electric fence and I guess the power had gone out. And so he got out 
and I didn't like I let him out and then he was gone and so I'm like walking through our neighborhood I think Christine was with me crying and a man comes out and like gives like I think he gave us a leash to like try to get the dog but he that was the extent of his help he saw girls crying and I was like I'm fine the dog's out I have to go get him (laughs) not at all the same one dude he did also still have to balance being one dude approaching yeah. my lady. Two like, I feel children. Like the most I can do is give you this leash. Fair. Uh, no, I like Fair. that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask if you, I didn't want to, thank you for sharing the Night Stalker one, because I didn't want to exclude you, but yeah. I also didn't want to put you on the spot. No. And the only, the only other one that I remember is what we did when we saw that girl in that bar who was like, she was with a dude. The dude had left. She was like slumped over, like basically asleep. And we both like looked at each other and we were like, should we go over and check on her? And yeah, we did. And that's right. So that's yes. the only one that I thought about. That's a good one. We're heroes, basically. <laughs> no, no. Um, now that we told all those helpful stories, what's making you anxious this week? All right. Well, um, I didn't think this was going to happen, but I made it on the jury. And so now I'm just going to give you, um, like a lightning round of all the anxieties that have come with being on this jury. Good. Okay. First, when I was going there for the jury selection part, there was, I was like, timing was perfect. I was like, this is going to be great. Of course, there was an accident. So then I'm like freaking out that I'm not going to get there on time. Then I thought I forgot my wallet. Like I didn't put it in the bag. I did. Also, I didn't even need it. They don't even check your ID or anything. You just walk in and you give them your name. I guess they're like, who would pretend want to lie to get on a jury? (laughs) Um... The first day very much felt like that episode in Community when um, What's-Their-Faces does Annie's, like, psychology experiment where they're, like, forced to just sit in a room and see how long it takes you to crack. Abed just stays in there for, like, 18 hours or something. (laughs) Yes, because you're just, like, we did the first section where everyone was, like, why can't you do the jury duty? And then they're, like, okay, go take a break and go get lunch. And then you're back and it's, like hours and hours and hours and you're like why aren't we being questioned like what I got to read a lot but I was also <laughs> like I'm stuck in this room for so long and I'm losing my goddamn mind yes and then and then there was a weird thing of like when you're questioned by the lawyers like you don't want to answer their questions wrong like at least for me, I was like suddenly back in school and I wanted to make the teacher happy, but also I didn't really want to get on the jury. So I was like, ask me a question where I can really show my bias. And then there's, <laughs> they didn't, I don't know. I guess not. Cause I made it on. And then, yeah. And then I was worried that I was going to get like rejected by the lawyers that it happened a couple times with a couple people. And I was like, I just can't have them make me get up and like wiggle out of this pew thing and leave i need them to reject me in a separate room in private not in front of my face remotely this is like uh sometimes i do user experience testing at work where we test websites and the user experience designers always say 
remember, we're not text testing you. We're testing the product. We're seeing how easy it is to use. So like, there's no wrong answer for you. We're not testing you. And I just cannot believe them. I know yeah. it's true. Like I know these people too, but I but still also. feel like I'm failing. If the thing yeah. is hard, I'm not like, wow, that site needs some work. So I'm like, guess I'm bad at using websites. Like I cannot, I'm the worst candidate for that. So oh wanting God. to impress the lawyers is like resonates with me for sure. And oh my Oh my God. It is so stressful being asked any questions by them because they're like, I don't know this, like, <laughs> uh, they're just so serious. And I'm like, Oh my God. And like, sometimes they would like go after people, right. They'd ask one question and they follow up and I'm like, Oh my God, is that going to be me? No, it never was. Um, but just <laughs> no follow up questions, please. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and then of course there's like, there was the dread of like looking at my email because we got released and they were like, if you get an email from us, you're on the jury. If you don't get an email by four, you're good. So like every hour I was like checking my email and that dread and then 404, there's the email. And now That's I'm rough. like, how do I live my life for the next maybe three weeks? How am I going to plan all of these goddamn lessons? They're going to learn nothing. And then of course there's the anxiety about like, they're, this case, whatever we decide, will change these people's lives forever. And how am I qualified to do any of this? I know. And I told you, and I meant it, that I, I think that's a useful trait in a juror to take it really seriously, to understand the gravity of the decisions you're making, that a little bit of that fear is actually helpful. Good. It's good. Okay. It's good. So that's all it's not fun anxiety. for you. No. But I am telling you, I think that's what makes you well suited for it. I mean, if I could be a professional juror tomorrow and it came with a good paycheck, I would do it. But that's not how this works. So no, no. In fact, there's some pretty good reasoning. <laughs> I think that they don't want anyone getting like large sums of money to be on juries. Yeah. yeah. If you want to get out of a jury, I think the way one question they got us just a quick tip if they ask you is anyone really excited to be on the jury you raise your hand you won't make it on the jury didn't know those that. are the like citizen sleuth true crime i should have done it i didn't it's okay <laughs> you didn't want to try the liz lemon and wear your I, princess leia costume i just really didn't think i was gonna get on it i was like because you had a questionnaire first before you ever showed up and i was very honest that's and good. I was like, they're not going to want me. They did. Like, one of the questions is, do you have like positive, really big positive or negative feelings towards law enforcement? And I'm like, yeah. Didn't matter. So what is making you anxious? Yeah. So I traveled this week for work and it went well, but there were a couple of things that in the moment were anxiety about travel. So I got into Utah at like 730 in the morning. And I had called the week before and arranged with the hotel for early check-in from 9 to 12 because my boss was going to pick me up at 10 and I certainly was not going to wear dress clothes on a 5.30 a.m. flight, right? Because so you're I'm in, not insane. <laughs> so I'm in jeans and a hoodie. I spend an, I kill an hour in the Starbucks and go over at 9 and the woman at the, I go in, the woman at the front desk looks at me and I'm like, I need to check in and she looks skeptical and I said, I have... I called for early check-in and she pulls it up and she's like, I do see that, but I just don't have a room ready right now. And I think I just like deflated and yeah. I was like, oh, and she was like, well, I can call, 
I think I even made a noise. I was very tired. I was like, Ugh. yeah, was of like, course. You're like, that room was your like relief, right? Like that's the thing that was my face and brush yeah. my teeth. And you know, she's like, well, let me call and double check. And I'm like, that'd be great. Cause I have to leave in about an hour for business. I think I said business meetings, which nothing sounds faker than just claiming you have business meetings. It was true. That's what I was yeah. going to, but the generic business meeting. I have business. Can you please check? <laughs> I do business. <laughs> I need to wear hard pants. So she calls housekeeping and they move me to a different type of room uh, that's the same and they get me in right away. So that was great. So that was something I was like, thank, thank goodness. So I show up, I'm dressed like a professional. I didn't have to change in the hotel bathroom, which was my other plan was to just change in like the general hotel bathroom if I had to. So then the next day I'm supposed to fly out at 6.45 PM and I log on to my computer for the afternoon's meetings and Southwest has canceled my connecting flight from Las Vegas to New Mexico. So they're like, we're working to get you rebooked. It's already stupid because my flight there was direct. It takes like an hour and a half, but flying back Southwest doesn't have the right hub, I guess. So you have to make a connection. So you end up taking two flights that are like an hour, an hour and a half each and going sort of the wrong direction to get home. Cause I was going from Utah to Las Vegas and then Las Vegas to New Mexico, which just is illogical. But my Las Vegas connection has been canceled. So I go online and I see now that I'm booked for 5.45 AM the next morning. Oh my God. I'm like, okay, well, first of all, that's a terrible, I really don't want to make that flight twice in one week. Nope. And also I checked out of my hotel and this rental car is due back tonight. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. You're at this point. And I'm maybe stealing a rental car. (laughs) I'm trying to figure, I think I've done in the past, remember? So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. My coworker reminds me, she says, call, call Deborah, who is our wonderful executive administrator and facilities coordinator and helps us with travel and expense reports. She's like, Deborah will help you. I'm like, oh my gosh, of course. So I instant message her and I'm like, can you please either get me on an earlier flight or work with the travel agency to get my hotel and my car extended? She's yeah. like, yes, stand by. She calls, she gets, she's like, can you make it to a five thirty flight tonight? Like, yes, I'll leave a little early. My manager's like, yes, get out of here when you need to leave. Um, anytime I work with Deborah, that like, have I ever told you when beneath my wings song plays, she's truly a hero. So she gets me on a flight. So I drive out there, um, return the car. The gate is like a mile and a half from security. Oh my God. But I make it, I get home. Not a big deal. Um, so that was a close one. I didn't know what I was going to do that. My dad is puppy sitting. I was like, I'll be home Thursday night. I'm like, I'm gonna have to call him and tell him I'm not going to be home until midday Friday. Um, and then I had been, I wore a mask to fly. Cause that's like the, I'm, I'll be honest. I am wearing them pretty much only on airplanes at this point. And yeah, so, I don't know if I'm ever going to be on an airplane without a mask again. Well, that was my intention, but then I was running for the plane in Utah and I got on without one and I didn't put one on. And then I felt weird about putting one on like once Mid- I was sitting by people. And of course <laughs> the woman next to me coughed like the entire hour and my brain is just Spinning. I'm like, this is it. I love that, like, not even her coughing. You were like, now I can just fight it. I would have really played it up and well, then, like, eye worse. contact so as I put it on. That felt aggressive. Also, yeah, I, I had, love like, that. I'll be honest. I had a sweaty face from running to the gate. Of course. Was, like, gross. So of course. It serves me right if I catch whatever. I would have done I, a move. Uh, typhoid Mary had on the plane next to me, but. Maybe you'll get some days off. 
Um, last time I got COVID, it was nothing. Me, if it was me, because I only do passive aggressiveness on <laughs> public transportation, so I would have done whipped out a wipe, wiped down everything like a lot, like armrest, the whole deal. And then I would have put that mask on, like, so <laughs> intentionally trying to make direct eye contact the whole time. And Which then also, like, adjust the, the air so that it's, like, <laughs> blowing as much possible between us. Do you know how hard it is to make eye contact with the person next to you <laughs> on an airplane? You're so close together. You have to really turn your neck. It would be difficult, but I think I could do it. I believe you. So my vanity and insecurity probably gave me COVID or something terrible I don't know I'm fine I feel fine so far okay good uh and then I did sit in the exit row on the wing on my last oh my flight god because so it's free in southwest and because I had been booked um, so late I'm in boarding group like z4000 so I get on the plane and the open the key is that the emergency exits, even the middle seats are better, right? Yeah. So I go right to the emergency row and there's a window. Uh, Did you get I the window it. seat? Yeah. Well, see, then there's better. no one next to me. Oh, perfect. Because um, it's like in, but I am right on the wing and it is a 737 Max 8. And I'm just thinking about the door blowing but off. It wasn't the emergency exit door. It was a random door. And the only way <laughs> that door is coming off is if you decide right. you want out early. You're right. And there is that, you know, we don't let the bad guys in our brain win, but man, do I want to pull on that handle sometimes. Anyway, what's, uh, what's bringing you joy this week? <laughs> I don't know. I struggled this week because I feel like, I, I just feel like it's so surreal, like being, I'm doing this weird part-time gig as for a juror sure. for sure while my other job is happening and I can't talk to anyone and so it's like is this even real is this even happening so I've been like it's fun to see like how much more aware I am of what I'm doing now so when I go home I'm like I can't watch anything new because there are too many new things happening right now yeah so I'm like let's put on some new girl I started making granny squares which Yay. is very satisfying because it's like I get to finish something mm -hmm. really quickly and one day it's going to be bigger. Um, and I have been not feeling bad about going to lunch during jury duty because guess what? I can't be in that courthouse all day. I cannot. So it's yeah. nice to go and walk and sit somewhere else for like an hour to two and a half hours one day. What That's the fuck? So random. Like, guys, we got to move this along. Speedy trial. Let's go. It must have, like, a late witness or so a lawyer had to be somewhere else for an hour. Like, what My is My mom was like, on? they're working on a plea deal. I'm like, don't hold your breath. Like, the, the, this has just only begun. Your mom would know. She's a bailiff. My mom, though. <laughs> okay, I figured it out. She worked. She was a secretary for a judge. Oh, okay. I told Lorian that my mom worked for a judge, and I did not know what she did. <laughs> she was a secretary. Um... But she's been very, she wants me to tell her everything. And I'm like, you should like, know I better. I can't tell you, mom. Right. You should know better. And she's like, one day she was like, oh, are people like watching the trial, like regular citizens? I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, then you can tell me. And I said, that's literally not what the judge said. She's Did like, she but pull, I could go. Like, I live in Missouri. What am I going to do? Oh, yeah. Of course she tried that. She's like, I'm not going to tell anyone. And I was like, first of all, that's never been true ever. You go to grandma <laughs> and you're like, this is what she told me. I'm not falling for that again. I'm not 12 anymore. 
But yeah, she's like, look, I could watch the trial if I wanted. So you can tell me. I'm like, okay, come on over. Hop on a plane. Try. Go to the courthouse and you can watch. Impeccable. Lo- unimpeachable logic. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> what is bringing you joy? Yeah, I just this week I was thinking I really like a lot of the people that I work with. Actually getting to see them in person is always fun. And that's cool. I There are a lot of really smart, driven, talented people who are also funny and kind. And so I like hanging out with them. You know, they're not, I don't have like a work best friend or anything, but I really like spending time with them and being around them and working with them. So that's a cool thing. That's pretty great. Happy about that this week. I love that. Um, if you haven't followed our social media, that would be great. If you could, it's at the underscore anxiety pod. Um, especially you want to make sure you're following because last year I came up with the idea to do a March Madness bracket, but we didn't have enough episodes. We so released better... like six episodes. <laughs> yeah. So this year you got to be on that social media so you can give us uh, your vote and see which anxiety that we've covered is the worst one. So, uh, follow that and the world can be a scary place. Don't forget to take a deep breath. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore anxiety pod. We'll talk to you next week.